Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You've tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, Episode 69, Dark Crystal. Welcome back to Sci-Fi Fidelity, everyone. It's Mike and Dave here with you to talk about another fantasy series here in September. We're really getting into the uh, magical worlds that are nothing like Earth, Dave. Some some of them are something like Earth, but this one is quite a departure. Dark Crystal is on Netflix, and it's another show that dropped on August 30th, just like Carnival Row that we talked about last week. And uh, boy, these these streaming services are really turning out some unique shows here. Well, and you hope it keeps up as the number of streaming services continues to expand. But, you know, we, we mentioned last week the world building that's taking place in so many of these shows. And yes, I, I am not a big fan of puppets in my shows, but <laughs> it's really difficult to watch Dark Crystal and not appreciate everything that goes into it. And, you know, I usually rely on you or Wayne to verify what I think, whether it's true or not, that certainly this seems to be a show that kids could probably watch as opposed to Carnival Row, which, you, yeah. yeah, I guess you might let your daughter that's I don't know, 23 or whatever she is now. You might let her watch it. 23, yeah. But yeah, exactly. That's basically this month has been uh, two shows for each of my daughters. (laughs) Carnival Row for my older daughter and and Dark Crystal. I did watch the first episode with my younger daughter, who's 11. And she kind of enjoyed it, I guess. I'm not sure what she would have thought of the 1982 movie, because there's a lot of people that say there was plenty of nightmare fuel in that one, especially when the Skeksis were draining the podlings. And just the horrific nature of that. So it is very dark. But like you said, I think it's the world building, the appreciation for the artistry that goes into puppetry uh, is just magnificent. And and even just the virtual sets that they have. Uh, I was told in an interview, I did an interview with the showrunners of Dark Crystal for the Fourth Wall podcast, which is another podcast here at Den of Geek. And they talked all about how they did this and how it was all filmed on set, even the scenes that take place outside. So got to give props to the artistry that goes into this uh, for sure. And it would have done Jim Henson proud, I think. Yeah. And and it's funny because Wayne has come around. He loves not only the dark crystal 1982 film, but the series as well. And he was excited to watch it with his kids and they were less than impressed. (laughs) I am not surprised by that. It is a very uh, acquired taste. So I assume those of you who are listening to this podcast are of my ilk and really enjoy this kind of stuff and start to lose yourself in it. You know, the, it doesn't matter so much that the puppet's lips aren't matching up with what they're saying. 
and it, you, you start to get used to it to the same way that you're, when you're watching a subtitled show, you start to forget that you're reading those captions underneath. So for those of you who are not aware, this is a network show based on a 1982 movie, which was a huge departure at the time for Jim Henson. He was going into much darker territory than his previous work. And it wasn't by any stretch a box office success. Unfortunately, you had to deal with the remnants of audience that were still around for E.T., which I think preceded it by less than a year. And it was still growing strong in theaters when The Dark Crystal came out. So it really didn't have much of a chance. But it told the story of the last of the Gelflings, which are kind of little elf-like creatures on a planet ruled by gluttonous Skeksis, which are kind of vulture meets crocodile (laughs) kind of creatures. Very evil looking. And one of the last of the Gelflings, Jen, was fated to heal the crystal of truth and return balance to the planet. So it's kind of a hero's journey, uh, very much uh, in the style of Tolkien and things like that. And thematically, it spoke to the idea that evil and good are two halves of the same whole. One cannot exist without the other. And so in that sense, I do think the message of the movie was quite unique and it carries over here into the Netflix series. Right. And also one of those early comments that the Skeksis make, if the crystal will not give, we will die. That take, take, take mentality that they seem to have. And, you know, you mentioned the hero's journey. What I really like in these first two episodes is that it's not entirely clear who the hero is going to be and, you know, how closely it will adhere to Campbell's notion of the hero's journey. Yeah. And of course, I am referring to the hero's journey in the movie, which when you only have two Gelflings left in the entire world, you know, it's easy to do that sort of thing. It's a chosen one style of story. Whereas in this one, yeah, you're right. They've gone back a thousand years before the actions of the Dark Crystal movie and talk about the Gelfling as a culture when it was still thriving and when the Skeksis were still trying to figure out how they were going to maintain their immortality. So I think it is a great concept that almost seems like an obvious choice if you rewatch the dark crystal movie you know of course you're going to show what the gelfings were like when they were more than just two of them left so we've got here in the series thra which is a planet circling three suns you've got the crystal of truth at its center it's the source of all life and there's this mother nature figure who's known as agra she's there to protect the crystal and closest to her heart are the seven clans of the Gelfling. Among them are our three heroes. And, and basically we've got three protagonists in this show. One from the Vapra clan in the mountains. They're the kind of like the ruling class. You've got the Stonewood forest dwellers who have prowess in battle. In fact, they guard the, the castle that the Skeksis live in with the crystal. And you've got the Grottens, a cave dwelling clan of the, Gelfling that live underground. They're forgotten by most of their fellow Gelflings and by the rest of the world as well. So we actually kind of see through the eyes of the Groton character as she comes above ground and sees the magnificence of this world. And we appreciate it along with her. So we're going to talk about the first couple of episodes here in the podcast. We will have a spoiler zone towards the end to share our overall impressions of the series. But the Skeksis are who I really like, Dave. Uh, just such great antagonists, especially since they're not even from Thra. They're from another world, and I'm still not quite sure what to do with that 
knowledge. <laughs> yeah, and, and even the vocal quality of the characters just adds such a richness to the evil that they exude in, in every scene they're in. Well, and that's what's so cool is that the actors that are doing the Skeksis have made themselves completely unrecognizable, even though they are stars in their own right. I mean, Jason Isaacs of the OA and other properties, you know, he's doing the emperor's voice, but you would never know that's Jason Isaacs. (laughs) And Simon Pegg is doing the voice of the Chamberlain, Mm, doing a lot of this. And, uh, you know, doesn't sound anything like Simon Pegg. So I think it's great that they were able to, I kind of sneak that in behind the scenes for these characters. Oh, and my wife always asks me, why are you looking at your computer when you're supposed to be watching that series? I'm looking up the voices behind <laughs> the characters. Katrina Balfe from Outlander. Yeah. I mean, tons of yeah. star star power. Deet yeah. is played by, uh, I can't remember the actress's name, but she's um, the one that got tossed over the wall there in Game of Thrones season eight. <laughs> At the end of it, I can't remember her name, but yeah, oh yeah, yeah, I can't remember it either. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so this is all about the Age of Resistance. Even the title of the series as a prequel lets you know that we're going to be seeing the Gelflings rise up against their Skeksis overlords, and it almost seems like this uh, mission would be doomed to fail if we already know that the 1982 movie only has two Gelfling left. <laughs> but Somehow they're going to probably have moments of victory along the way. And the showrunners in the interview that I had with them that you can check out on Den of Geek and on the Fourth Wall podcast hints that there might be more to come. And of course, season one does end on a pretty big open-ended foreshadowing that there's more of this battle to come. But let's talk a little bit about each character rather than breaking it down by the first two episodes. We'll just talk about what they do in the first two episodes. But we've got three protagonists. The first is Brea. She is the princess in the land of Harar. And she's kind of like a a bookworm, would you say, Dave? Someone who likes to gain knowledge, which is not necessarily a popular trait for a princess. No, and the f- library is phenomenal. I mean, the <laughs> detail, the spiral staircases that have books along the, the sides. And, and then, of course, as you said, Brea just so engrossed in books. I mean, this is her happy place. Uh, that's for sure. And it takes a while for us to figure out what is going to occur with this character. But I love that they set her up this way because she's the youngest of three sisters under the all Madra. The Madras are basically the leaders of each clan. They're all women and the all Madra kind of rules over all the clans. And so Brea is the daughter of the all Madra. She's getting ready to go to a tithing ceremony, her very first, in which the Gelfling kind of uh, give tribute to their Skeksis lords. And she's kind of anxious about it. She's looking forward to to going. And when she falls in front of the Skeksis carriage, she is brought into the carriage by the Skeksis, kind of like in a faux uh, generous way. Oh, isn't this wonderful that I'm deigning to have a Gelfling in my carriage. But so she's brought to the ceremony and in this carriage and she realizes that something's not quite right about this tithing ceremony. And she starts to question it right away. And it's probably a good thing. This is the first time she's seen it because she realizes it's not really fair that the Skeksis are demanding things from the people of her clan because a lot of them are actually noticing that they're not getting enough crops because something's going on. Something is 
some corruption has taken over the land. And of course it's tied into what's going on with the crystal of truth and how the Skeksis are, are using it to give themselves immortality, but they don't know that. And the thing is it prevents them from being able to give as much tribute as they would have in the past. And the Skeksis treat these people very unfairly. And in fact, take a family heirloom from a farmer's wife, which just sets Bria off. Right. I mean, it's a heartbreaking scene, but as you say, that is what really opens her eyes to, you know, the inequity of this system as it's taking place. Right. And so she is kind of poo-pooed for a little while, but she really gets upset about it and yells the phrase, I demand the truth when talking to the librarian. And suddenly it's almost as though the books hear her and one of the books glows and she is shown uh, a symbol that kind of hovers in the air for a bit. And you're kind of like, well, what is that? And she certainly doesn't know. And basically the journey then becomes for her, what does the symbol mean and where does it lead her? Because it leads her down some very, very interesting paths and causes her to kind of approach her mother and say, this system isn't fair and almost seems like she kind of might have persuaded her mother a bit because the Skeksis had given the the pendant that was taken from the farmer's wife to the Almadra, and Brea was able to convince her to give it back to the farmer's wife rather than take it as a kind of bribe. Yeah, and, and there are a lot of really cool concepts. I mean, that, that notion that the truth is hidden in the dream space, and then that whole idea about dream fasting between individuals right just so fascinating and and you know we always talk about revealing the truth and that certainly plays into the first two episodes yeah and and dream fasting comes into play with one of the other protagonists but it was a concept that was brought up in the movie dream fasting was definitely a big part of the world building that came about from jim henson himself back when he when he made that movie so Brea is reminded by the librarian that the Seafans, the Seafan clan, which is kind of a, a pirate version of the Gelfling, who are down by the docks, they might know what that symbol is. They know all about symbols. So she goes to one of the elders down there who tries to fool her into drinking a potion that will help, help her forget that she ever saw the symbol because it's seen as dangerous. But little does this elder know that Brea has done quite a bit of reading. She knows exactly what this potion is that she has been given and she switches the cups on him and it causes him to forget rather than her. And so we are set up right away that Brea is not going to be an easy one to dissuade from her mission. And so the strength of her character is definitely something that's set up very early. And even when she is sentenced at the end of episode two to do some community service, uh, with this order of lesser service where they have to clean some podlings is not the most glamorous of tasks for a princess to do, but that sets up her journey as she goes out into the world and tries to figure out what this symbol is. But I just love how each of these protagonists starts their own journey, which exposes us to their area of the world, which helps us see what this world is all about. And so the second clan that has a main character to contribute are the Stonewood Guards. And here we have Rianne. He basically is a mischievous son of the captain of the guard, 
and he's kind of looking to prove himself. So he's the one that shows us the first bit of dream fasting with Mira, who is one of his companions in the guard. And they actually have a little minor mission at the start when they see a corrupted Arathim soldier. And the Arathims are also known as spitters. And they're basically big giant spiders, right, Dave? And, oh, yeah, yeah. And the corruption that I'm referring to is the fact that the dark crystal is corrupting the life, the crops, the animals, the plants of Thra are kind of turning bad, I guess you could say. And so this spider starts um, running loose in the castle and, and they go after it. But as a result of pursuing this creature, they go down into the caverns where they don't normally venture and they overhear some of the stuff that the Skeksis are up to. In particular, the scientist who is the great character that we see in the 1982 movie. And so it's great to see some of them in this prequel, even though it's thousands of years beforehand, because we're dealing with immortals, uh, you can reuse these characters and because they're puppets, they can look exactly the same as they did before. (laughs) But he basically is trying to figure out a way on behalf of the emperor to still maintain their immortality, even though the crystal is not giving up anything on its own. And so the Chamberlain helps him come up with this plan to pull the life force out of a being that is native to Thra and place their essence into this liquid that they can then drink and become replenished. And it, and it actually does work. They are able to use this process on Mira, who is uh, Rianne's girlfriend, I guess you could say. And he is horrified to watch it unfold before him. And of course, this is clearly going to set up his journey uh, kind of a maybe a mission of revenge of sorts, Dave. Well, yeah, and you know, all precipitated by Chamberlain, who for me is the most despicable character <laughs> yeah. in these first two episodes. But you know, we've we've mentioned Game of Thrones allusions it seems like for every show we podcast about. He certainly reminds me of Littlefinger, you know, spreading little rumors and, and you know, somebody picks up a rumor and, and he's just so controlling. He knows how to play people. And again, to, to great effect, at least for him. Right. And I just remembered it's uh, Natalie Emmanuel who played uh, Missing Day from Game of Thrones. Okay. <laughs> That's voicing Deet. So, um, so there are Game of Thrones connections there as well. And Lena Headey is in this one as well. <laughs> she plays one of the one of the Madras. Yeah, so that is set up quite well. Obviously, he's going to have to let the entire Gelfling race know, Rianne that is, that the Skeksis are up to no good. Because everyone thinks the Skeksis are their protectors. They're the ones that brought technology to this world and brought a lot of the advancements to the Gelfling culture. And so they feel that they owe them. And uh, lo and behold, they're, of course, draining the very essence of their people and of their planet itself. Right. So, I mean, I guess we get the idea that this has been going on for generation after generation so long that, as you say, they just see these people as their benefactors. Yeah. And of course, Agra is a big reason why they've been able to get away with it, because they kind of seduced her into exploring the universe you know they came from another planet and so she actually wants to learn more about the world outside of thra and is asleep in her orrery her observatory uh, for thousands of years learning more about the outside world and while she's asleep is when of course 
the Skeksis take over. So it's interesting to see Agra wake up in this first episode and realize that, oops, while the cat was away, the mice have definitely played. All right. Now, does that bother you at all? Because it bothers me that she was that naive to not anticipate something like this happening. Yeah, they were supposed to protect things. But I mean, I guess if you've watched the the movie, you might know uh, something about the creation of the Skeksis in particular and the mystics that show up in later episodes here in the Netflix series that might explain why Agra was naive. But I got to withhold judgment because I don't know if that aspect of the movie is going to play out in the series. But those who have seen the movie know what I'm talking about. But yeah, I love the different Skeksis. They each have their own different personality and the Chamberlain is definitely the most duplicitous, but they're concerned that Rian saw what they did to Mira and will tell the rest of the Gelflings. So they start this great rumor. It's a brilliant ploy. They decide to say Rian killed Mira, not knowing of course that everyone is going to know that knows anything about them, that they were close, that they were intimate with each other. So it's not something that would be believed by any of their of Rian's friends, but the rumor does take hold. And the brilliance of the plan is that they say that he's sick. He's got a sickness. And so if he tries to tell other people by dream fasting with them, because dream fasting allows them to see the truth of what actually happened because they share memories. They share. It's kind of like a Vulcan mind meld. They're actually able to see what the other person saw, but they say that if you try to dream fast with Rianne, you'll get the sickness that he has. And I guess it's a very believable lie based on what's going on with the planet at large, with the, with the animals and the plants being corrupted. So I thought that was a, a nice way to keep Rianne from being believed at first. Right. And, and his father is so naive. Again, that that's, bothers me a little bit here. I mean, he's a good man, but it seems like he, he buys all of this a bit too easily. Yeah, I think they all do. And I think what we're supposed to believe here is that the Gelfling are very trusting race to the point of naivete. And I think it's believable if you think of the origin of the Gelfling as a race that had no reason to distrust anyone because everything was so balanced on this planet. So I think that's what, what we're getting at. But of course, their eyes are very much opened throughout the course of the series. And in fact, one of the people that Rian goes to is his own uh, Stonewood clan and even brings Mira's essence, which he's able to steal from the Chamberlain to try and use it as proof. But he brings it to Madra Farah, the leader of the clan, who is wonderfully voiced by Lena Headey. And I love that Madra Farah actually goes through a very Cersei-like, a, a, a kind of like the opposite of Cersei in terms of having a lot of ambition, but for the right reasons <laughs> instead of the wrong ones. So good voice choice for that character. <laughs> but Rianne has definitely has trouble convincing his clan. It takes quite a while for him to start building up some people who stand behind him. And uh, that's his journey moving forward. And of course, the Skeksis culture is revealed during the course of Rianne's plotline since he does work in the castle. And we do see a lot of what the scientist is up to, what the emperor wants, who seems to be thirsty for immortality at any cost. And uh, so there's a lot of things there. And in fact, one of my favorite moments in the Skeksis plotline in the first two episodes is when the scientist is held to blame for Rian's escape. So they sentence him to the peeper beetle, which chews out his eye 
And thus it explains the mechanical eye that we see him with in the movie. So I like that they are able to take details from the movie and reverse engineer them that way. Yeah. Cool. But uh, the last character, definitely my favorite, the last protagonist, I should say is definitely my favorite. As I mentioned, uh, voiced by Natalie Emmanuel, and that is Deet, who is from the caves of Grot. And she notices that the corruption in some of the moss that she's feeding to these nurlocks, which are kind of like worms that act as their cattle under the ground in the caves. She feeds them the moss and it makes them aggressive. And there's this purple glow that shows up, which is very reminiscent of the purple glow of the crystal of truth, which is supposed to be white or clear. And it's, and it definitely isn't. So it's definitely a corruption that's spreading. They call it the darkening. And in fact, she falls into this chamber where the roots of a being, I guess you could say called the sanctuary tree, this very, very old tree tells her about what's going on with Thra, this infectious contamination that has been kept contained by the trees up until now, but now they need help. So she is shown a vision, which includes things like auger and pain. It shows glimpses of more corruption uh, around all of the different parts of the planet. So she's got to go above ground and rally everyone to help get rid of this darkening. So her mission is obviously going to intersect with Rianne's and with Bria's, but for very different reasons. And I just love how they're actually able to give them completely different missions at the start, which you can't really see up front how they're going to intersect. But then they of course come together to a common cause because it's all caused by the Skeksis. Right. And I even believe that this is the first time Deet has ever been above ground. Yeah. And that's, what's great because the audience needs a proxy for their own sense of discovery. And so when she looks around and marvels at the diversity of life that's above ground, we get to see it as well. And there was this great piece to the interview that I had with the creators of the show where they talked about the Froud family. The Froud family was involved in the original movie and Brian Froud is the creature creator. He's the one that, you know, drew up all the artist sketches of these what the Gelfling look like, what the mystics look like, what the Skeksis look like, and then created them, created the puppets. And so Brian Froud and his wife, Wendy joined the Netflix series as well. And their son, Toby joined the team as well and was able to carry on the legacy. And Wendy apparently just took scraps from around the workshop to create a lot of the creatures that Deet sees when she comes above ground. So all these random little creatures that are peeking out from bushes, a lot of them are just like pieces of foam and eyeballs that were sitting around <laughs> that she was able to make into something. So a nice way to kind of give a sense that there's a whole ecology that Deet is being exposed to. But we don't get to see too much of Deet's journey in these first two episodes. All we know is that she has to go see the Al Madra, who is in the mountains which we know that's where Brea is too. So we know they're going to intersect at some point, but when she's above ground, she meets a lot of cute creatures, but she also meets the spitter that has escaped the same one that I assume it's the same one that Rianne ran into as well. And she's saved by a podling named Hup who is on his way to Harar to become a paladin. And so he becomes her guide along the way since she's not familiar with the above ground world. So three great characters to follow 
And uh, I just think the storytelling, the exposition, if you will, is just really well done. And you, you know, how Dave, how hard it is to get the exposition, right? Well, it is. And, you know, I think you have to be able to look beyond the similarities to Tolkien's Lord of the Rings or George Lucas's star Wars, uh, because there are a lot of similarities oh, yeah. in, in the journeys that these characters are undertaking but there's just something about the feel. So I guess we'll have to credit the world building here. And again, these are puppets, but the voices are just so rich. And again, it doesn't take long to just get immersed in this world. And for somebody that is a self proclaimed, I don't want to say puppet hater, <laughs> uh, puppet, uh, you know what I'm trying to say. Unappreciator. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed it. And I, I can see watching some more and seeing how it goes. All right. And, and actually, that's a great segue. You, you mentioned the Tolkien aspect of it. So we're going to hit the spoiler zone button here and talk about some overall impressions of this series. So this is for, only for those who have seen all 10 episodes. And uh, we'll be right back to talk a little bit about some of the Tolkien things that I noticed were very prevalent. You are now entering the spoiler zone. All right. So spoilers ahead. So be forewarned, but I'll go ahead and start with the one you mentioned, Dave, the Tolkien references and none was so overt, but still so well done and very much appreciated than Agra's Gandalf-like aspects. Did you see that for yourself, even the part that you saw? Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you could hardly miss it. But what's great is that at the end, there's this great little scene where Agra appears to sacrifice herself the same way that Gandalf does with the Balrog. And then she comes back in a spectacular fashion. You've got to love, anytime uh, a show employs a resurrection kind of mythology to follow with a character like that. And she doesn't necessarily come back stronger than before, like Gandalf the white, but the parallels are clearly there. And, and she definitely was counting on the idea that they drained her essence, put her inside the hunter. And so then when the hunter was killed by his corresponding mystic, uh, sacrificing himself out comes Agra ready for life once again. So I thought that was a great little twist on our expectations, but very recognizable at the same time for those of us who have followed Tolkien. So that was really good. But obviously we've got a lot of questions here at the end. I mean, Deet has soaked up a ton of the darkening that the uh, sanctuary tree has gifted her with or cursed her with, depending on how you look at it. She saved all the Nurlocks. She has sucked up all their corruption She absorbed that hit from the emperor's staff where he's been storing up a lot of the darkening himself. And then she retreats into the woods. Now, does she do that to protect others from herself? Now that she's kind of turned to the dark side, you mentioned star Wars, Dave, is she going into the woods to keep others away from her since she's now become corrupted herself? Or is she off to become even more powerful? Like, uh, you know, Yoda, on that swamp planet when Luke comes to visit him. So Deet is just such an interesting character because didn't you sense Dave, that she was such an innocent and maybe a cockeyed optimist in some ways at the beginning. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, as you said, and I haven't seen as, as far as you've seen, but that character that, as you described, amasses all of this power. Now 
it's going to be up to them to work out the moral, ethical aspects of having this much power. Have they gone to the dark side as young Anakin Skywalker does to eventually become Darth (laughs) Vader? You know, did they borrow this from Star Wars? Maybe. I don't care. I know. I, I just love it. And the fact that Deed is so innocent and the fact that she becomes probably one of the most powerful characters by the end is just brilliant because now she's got to make the tough choices that maybe she's not equipped to make or maybe she's the perfect person to make those kind of decisions because she's so uncorrupted by the politics, I guess, of Thra. So I can't wait to see what they do with that. And of course, lots of nods to the movie because this is a prequel. Uh, we see things that might lead to something that is familiar to movies, the movie watchers, because of course the dual glaive that Rianne wields has a crystal in its hilt and it pulls the essence out of the general. It seems like it, I mean, this is how I interpret it. It looked like something came out of the general when he was impaled on the dual glaive and went into that crystal in the hilt. So it's almost as though this crystal is reclaiming the essence that the general has drunk and is returning it to Thra to, to sort of bring things back into balance. So when Brea discovers once the dual glaive has broken, she picks up that crystal and realizes that it's the shard, the exact same shard that people who have watched the movie know that Jen carried to heal the crystal truth. What does that mean moving forward? I mean, if they have the shard now, can they heal the crystal of truth now? Or do they have to wait? a thousand years for Jen to do it like he did in the movie. I question whether or not we're going to see a revisionist version of the original movie, because I mean, we can't keep moving forward, assuming that the movie is going to unfold where there's no Gelfling left. Can we Dave or can, or can we, I guess we can, but (laughs) I know, I don't know what to think, but the mystery is what's great. You know, just the speculation of it, but they clearly were going for the moviegoers at the very end when we see the scientist come up with a brilliant plan for creating an army for the Skeksis, because, of course, there aren't that many of them. So uh, they're battling against the sheer numbers of the Gelfling. They create the Gartham, and, of course, the Gartham were the main soldiers in the movie, and they are explained here in the series as a merging of the Aerithim, the spiders, sort of take the carapace off of those big giant spiders and merge them with the Grunak who are those two servants that the scientist employed to help him create his machines to drain the Gelfling. So obviously they're going to create more of these Gartham. They're maybe going to have a huge battle in season two, but it's just hinted at, I mean, here at the very end, we've got this battle scene about to happen. The clans have all come together in support of the small band that, that Brea and Rianne have, and Deet have been able to gather, and yet they barely have begun to fight. So now in season two, are they going to have to combat an entire army of Gartham? Because all we really see that maybe gives us a little hope in that direction is we see Hup reviving lore, that stone golem that was protecting Brea. But, you know, a stone golem, one single stone golem, can only do so much against an entire army of you know, fearsome creatures that the Skeksis are creating. So boy, did they do a heck of a lot of foreshadowing for uh, storylines that might happen in season two there at the end. In that sense, Dave, I feel like I'm repeating myself from last week when we talked about Carnival Row, where the whole season one almost seems to be a prologue 
to the real battle that's about to come. Well, and you wonder because it seems as if Netflix model these days seems to be three seasons. Yeah, exactly. So like what you're saying, or at least what I hear you saying is that season one just seems to be setting up season two. Yeah, exactly. Which then will in turn set up season three. And then we'll, of course, be disappointed that there's no season four. (laughs) But you know what? I don't hate that model. No, I don't either. The prologue idea takes away a lot of downfalls that a lot of first seasons have. First seasons tend to be exposition heavy. A lot of people say, oh, well, season one wasn't too good, but wait till you get to season two. Like even good season ones, like the hundred, for example, season two was, and season three were like twice as better as good, three times as, as good. So I think that actually might also be true for Carnival Row and The Dark Crystal, both of which I loved. I think we're in store for even more great things to come. And I couldn't be more excited about it because of that. Well, do I get to hear Hup say, revive Gollum, I will? (laughs) He is a bit Yoda-like, isn't he? (laughs) All right. Well, uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed that discussion of The Dark Crystal. I know it's kind of an acquired taste. So thank you to those of you who (laughs) are on board with the, the puppet fantasy discussion that we had here. But we've got a discussion topic coming up next, Dave. What do we got? We are going to talk about the elder elite, those actors that are age 70 and above that are still working in the genre field. And when we started this topic, we weren't sure we were going to be able to find enough of them. But lo and behold, they're out there. Well, what's interesting is that if we had made the threshold 60 or 65, even we could have found tons. But I love that we went with 70 plus television actors that are over 70 years old and are still working gave us just the right amount of uh, people to talk about. I can't wait to share this topic with our listeners on Facebook to see what they come up with. I'm sure they'll repeat some of the choices that we came up with, but I'm hoping they'll maybe come up with some that we didn't find in our research as well. Cause that's always part of the fun, but that's going to be it for this episode of sci-fi fidelity. Keep the discussion going on social media. You can follow den of geek on Twitter and Facebook at den of geek us. And we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in the meantime, we'd love it if you could rate and review the podcast wherever you access it. Be sure to send us your suggestions for future topics on social media or in an email to sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching fashion trends, pep talks where we give advice, mental health moments, and games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> <laughs>